Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of the most amazing city, Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and down the street via the internet is Troy Eller English. Hey, Troy, how are things going on down there? Uh, it's very uh, damp and humid. Damp other- and humid. But otherwise delightful. <laughs> Del- delightful with the heat. How's the hair? Is it poof? Does, does your hair poof like mine? It, uh, no, but it's still wet from being caught in the downpour this morning when I dropped off my kids at school. So Isn't that always fun when that happens? Don't you just like, where, where was your umbrella? It was in my car and it was broken. Like everybody, <laughs> every, about half of America has a broken umbrella in their car that they think is going to work each time it rains, don't they? Okay, folks, today is part two of the podcast of the interview that the UAW archivist Gavin Strassel conducted with Sharon Woodcock, widow to Leonard Woodcock. As you all learned last time, Leonard Woodcock was president of the UAW, envoy to the People's Republic of China, and that country's first ambassador. So in part two, Sharon continues to share some great stories about their lives in China in the 1970s, and also she shares what Leonard did after his diplomatic service. But wait, folks, there is more. I was able to pin down Gavin for a short interview. You know, I just wanted to know more about his extensive knowledge of Leonard Woodcock and if if there was the cartoon from Doonesbury in the collection when Uncle Duke, the envoy of the t- at the time in China, was replaced by Woodcock. And let's just say Uncle Duke did not appreciate it or anything dealing with Gary Trudeau. So, But also, at the same time, we get to know a little bit more about Gavin. There is more to him than just a mad Twitter fiend. So enjoy part two of From the Bargaining Table to Diplomatic Table, Leonard Woodcock in China. You know, there's one photo in, uh, that I saw of Dong Xiaoping's visit, mm-hmm. uh, and this is in the Leonard Woodcock papers, so mm-hmm. his visit to the United States, uh-huh. where it looked like, you know, all of the Chinese dignitaries and all the American mm-hmm. uh, Americans taking them around the country went on a dog sled trip together. Oh, that was wonderful. It was the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador and his wife and the two of us. And uh, let's see there. We had a few more people with us from the state department on both sides, I'm sure. And we had gone up to Alaska to meet the flight that was bringing him in. And it was um, that his airplane flew into uh, Elmendorf air force base in Anchorage. And we had gone a day and a half early, and we had this extra time to spend. So the ambassador and his wife, uh, Chai Zemin, had um, had become good friends at that point. And so we took off for a ride on the dog sled ride on the glaciers, and uh, something I'd never done, and none of us had. Uh, Leonard hadn't either. It looked like everybody was having a good time, except I think a couple of the people from China did not really seem to be enjoying it. uh, They were a little puzzled. They were puzzled. Yeah, they'd never seen dog sleds before. And uh, it was, uh, but it was a good time had by all. And at that point, let's see, they landed um, 
It was near midnight when we took off, so they'd been there four or five hours at the most on their airplane, and they uh, left it there, is my memory. I haven't looked at this in quite some time now, but they left the plane there, and we got on Air Force, uh, the uh, president's airplane at that point, Air Force uh, Two, because he wasn't on it, um, and flew into Andrews Air Base, and uh, we slept. Um, Everybody slept on that flight, but it was a very comfortable ride, I must say. Uh, and we got, we flew into Andrews Air Force Base outside of Washington, D.C., and it was just beginning to snow, and it was a picture postcard. It could not have been a nicer entrance for people to see the Washington area. And the weather was clear enough. We could look out, and the snow was falling. It was a good trip. Uh, he enjoyed it. There were various small problems when you look back with microphones and such. They were amazed at the traffic of cars once we got to Houston. In Washington, they had stopped the traffic so that they stayed at Blair House. They would get in the car and be driven, no cars on the road. In um, Atlanta, it was the same thing, no cars on the road people every place uh, looking and waving at them and such. But we got to Houston and they, um, we had the um, rodeo at Symington, I believe was the name of the little town. And that was the first time that they had not blocked the traffic completely. And they were shocked at the number of cars on the road. And uh, so then in Seattle, they also saw cars, but uh, they were they loved the rodeo, and he asked for the spiciest food he could have once we got to the rodeo, and they had some some spare ribs that were barbecued spare mm. ribs that were quite spicy. Um, his wife frowned on that a little bit, but uh, they just didn't want him to have an upset stomach, of course. And in Georgia, in Atlanta, the formal dinner the governor gave Governor. Busby and his wife, round tables, large room, dozens of tables, lots and lots of people, lots of all of the surrounding state governors were there. They, um, Governor Busby reached across and, and said through the translator to Deng Xiaoping, what have you found most unusual about your trip to the United States at this point? And through the translator, immediately he said, veal with every meal. And we all had to chuckle because the State Department had inquired, of course, as they do for all leadership visits like this, what type of food does the person like, what type can they, uh, should they abstain from, etc., etc. And they had been told a very bland diet. Well, if you think about a bland diet, you end up with veal, and uh, how bland can it be? He had had it twice in Washington, on the airplane, and uh, no, at that point he'd had it three times in Washington and once on the airplane, and then we had it that night at the governor's dinner in Atlanta. So it was very, um, we all learned a lesson at that point. But he loved the ribs and, and the cowboy hat that he was given, and he, he rode around in the stagecoach 
famous pictures of that. Um, oh gosh, I'm gonna have to look that up. Oh, it's a wonderful picture, and he's uh, leaning out of the, uh, leaning, uh, waving his hat, leaning out of the window of the stagecoach. A very Western, American Western. Yeah, absolutely. So, just like in the movies, he said later. Just like in the movies. But he was fun. He was just fun, uh, and and a visionary. He was an extraordinary human being. He really was. And he had been arrested many times, and he had suffered physically. Um, uh, had a one had a really interesting family as well. So we got to know some of them. That's amazing. That you know, being able to get to know on a personal level a leader like that. Right. Uh, and especially with a country like China, which at the time was very guarded about their heads of state. Yes, yes. And, well, they had suffered so greatly through the Cultural Revolution and the, the, um, the period of time when there was so little, there was so little food, there was so much, um, uh, so much that needed to be corrected. And he had the vision to correct it and allow for changes not all good, not all bad, but it 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 helped a he great really, deal. He really paved the way for. He did indeed. What we and, see today. Um, Leonard was a wonderful choice to um, negotiate normalization. President Carter lived up to his promise of early in my um, term. Term will I um, make the commitment? Um, Mao Zedong had said um, very famously about Nixon not not only opening the door, but he just held it open. He never completed the normalization project process. And um, he was supposed to have said at one point, Watergate, what's the big deal? I mean, why, why not, uh, why do you lose a president over Watergate? Uh, of course, all that would have been through translators, so it might have been misunderstood in some ways. But uh, David Bruce was the very first leader um, uh, from America to be in the liaison office. He had been um, a banker in Washington and then uh, very active in diplomacy and had been to the court of St. James in England uh, as ambassador. He was the first and George Bush uh, Sr. was the second. And he and his wife Barbara were, were really admired by the Chinese. They rode their bicycles very much uh, much of the time around uh, Beijing. He was known and for physical fitness. He was in for physical fitness yeah. and uh, good balance because there that's when there were very few cars and there were mules and carts and and uh, thousands of bicycles in the parking lots on very few cars indeed. Oh I must tell one story. Though. Absolutely. Uh, the story is about George Bush being the head of the liaison office. He wanted a Cadillac as the official car, and he wanted the car to be sent right away so he could use it whenever he used the car and not his bicycle. And the State Department said, no, you're not even an embassy. You have no, you're not qualified. Well, I want a Cadillac. No, you're not qualified to have a Cadillac. You can have, and they would send a list. And each time he said, I want a Cadillac, the list got shorter. And pretty soon it got down to, I want a Cadillac. And they said, no, you, you are not qualified. You're the building, the, it's not qualified. You can't have a Cadillac. 
you can have a marathon, a marathon checker. And after much to do, I've seen the telegram, but I, I don't, the much to do, I'm not certain of. I didn't witness that. But after much to do, I was told, um, he sent a telegram back that reads, okay, send checker, take out meter. And only if you know that the New York taxi cabs are marathon checkers do you get it. And so many people today uh. would not recognize what he was saying. But marathon checkers were big cars made in um, western Michigan, and I can't tell you what town, I can't remember. It was the only non-union automobile made in the United States. And it was a wonderful car that we hated to give up at the point where we finally, um, what did we get? I think we ended up with a big Buick that was sent out after normalization, because then we were an embassy. But um, the marathon is, okay, send marathon, send checker, take out meter. Is, uh, and we all chuckle every time we think about the only car that was non-union was the one assigned to the embassy. But that's why. At that point, we were making um, a lot of the runs to the airport because we didn't have very much staff. And so we would often, you know, it, it, Leonard didn't mind pitching in and doing his part. And if three people were coming in at the airport and had six bags apiece and we could take the people and somebody else take the bags or, or sometimes we'd take one person and half the bags because the car was so big you could just fill it up and have room. You could sit on top of suitcases even and have headspace. But when the car had to be given up, the Supreme Court Justice, the head Supreme Court Justice in China got the car. And always at big events, di diplomatic events, where everybody's got a black car and everybody's got about the same length car and they've all got red ribbons or pink flowers or something to denote, here, here I am, uh, the driver would try to get your attention. Our marathon checker stood about 12 inches higher than all the other cars. So we always knew where the driver was. It's the most influential and, taxi cab in Oh, absolutely, world it history. was. I hope it's still running. It was a great car. It was a great car. I had a little uh, Volkswagen Beetle, and the driver, Leonard's driver, would see me driving sometimes if I was running an errand. I had no reason to use him. And he'd get so upset with me because I didn't honk enough. I'm supposed to honk enough. To, they, they need to let you through. You just honk. And you, at that time, there were so many bicycles. I didn't drive very far, but if I needed just to run someplace I, nearby, I certainly would do so. And uh, he'd say, you don't honk enough, no honk enough. So he had people out watching for me. So <laughs> he'd get a report. The ambassador's wife is not honking enough. <laughs> so it was great fun. But we had lots of fun there. We, we just made the most of every day. Um, I would buy stamps for the children, uh, Chinese stamps for uh, Leonard's uh, grandchildren. And uh, they got to know me at the stamp store. And sometimes you'd stand outside the stamp store and there was a, what would be the, the grassy area next to the sidewalk was really uh, just a, a dirt that had been uh, pretty well walked on. And there were some trees that were still living. And you'd stand under those trees and the people with stamp collectors would be swapping stamps or selling stamps. And they got to know me. And if 
Leonard was with me and I didn't have enough yuan or I'd spent it all, they, they got to the point where I would look over and say to Leonard, I need more yuan, and I would say it in English. And a couple of these fellows learned how to say that so they could see when I was out of money. And if he was with me, they'd turn around and they'd say, more yuan, please, Leonard. <laughs> and it was, and that was the only time he was called Leonard, I think, in all of uh, the time he was in China. But those stamp collectors were wonderful. So we had a, we just had a good time while we were there. Made the most of it. So there's the time where Leonard is in organized labor. Then mm. he goes and joins the government and works in Asia. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the time after that, um, after he retired from the State Department. We uh, thought we were going to live up north at Black Lake at the Education Center. And that, we didn't, neither of us realized that the requests that would come in, the number of requests for speaking engagements and for being involved in um, short-term activities at other universities, other schools, other businesses. And so it wasn't going to work out to stay up at Black Lake. It was just too far from the airport. And this is and, the uh, UAW's education, education Facility. Center in Onaway, Michigan, um, uh, and near on Blake, Black Lake, actually. The, the lake there is named Black Lake. Little town of Onaway. Um, we just uh, we liked the people up there. We would have been happy to have stayed, but there was too much activity that we had not anticipated. So we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Leonard was asked to teach at the Honor School at the University of Michigan, and did that for um, seven semesters, I think, altogether, and enjoyed it very much. And he also continued to teach one or two classes for other people in other departments, uh, economics, history, certainly. Um, even um, the music school once asked him to talk about the music that he'd heard in China and such. So you never knew where the invitation was going to come from or take you. He also continued to be honored by various schools with uh, honorary doctorates. By the time he died, he had 22 honorary doctorates wow. uh, that he, he was so pleased that people recognized some of what he had stood for and, and what his, um, his goals were. So that was a very positive aspect. We continued to go back and forth to China twice, three times a year. Um, while there, we might or might not singly or uh, together meet with various um, groups. I remember he worked, um, spent quite a bit of time with some, one of the big universities out in the western part of China, and their discussion was about how to keep students interested, how to, how to uh, frame your university campus in certain ways, and his work here at Wayne State University on the board of uh, direct, uh, board, board of, of governors, governors uh, certainly it gave him information to draw on and history of the time that he was very active here at the, the university. Before he became president of the UAW, he actually was very involved in various uh, aspects of education and not expecting to become president ever, 
probably would have gone into a formal teaching role at some point. Um, that just all changed with the plane crash and uh, took Walter Ruther's life. But certainly education was always on the top of his list. So frequently the Chinese universities would talk to him about consulting and the, um, how you could make a university better. How are yours better? How, and what, I, one of the ideas I just realized is uh, that he often talked about was community colleges. And when the Chinese Ministry of Education was looking at just sending Chinese students to Yale and Harvard and Princeton and uh, Northwestern and the bigger schools, uh, they were forgetting the smaller schools where actually the uh, citizens, the students would have gotten a more um, concise uh, education in a shorter period of time that would have been useful for the continued development of China. And so he pushed um, uh, the beginning of sending students to uh, the two-year programs, which I think was actually successful for a period of time. I don't know if that still continues or not, but uh, even you know, we forget uh, how much you can learn in two years. You don't need to have a four-year uh, education all the time. But many of those students went back. Many, uh, to our regret, uh, didn't go back to help China during that time. But they had to make, those students had to make individual decisions and they made them with their family's uh, knowledge or without. We often, um, would be contacted by parents who were saying, you know, why didn't my child come home? And um, when we were in China, uh, but uh, they, they could correspond with each other and it was a decision that the parents weren't penalized for, but they were disappointed. Uh, they missed their children and it would be like an American child staying in Italy, for example, if they'd gone to school in Italy. So it, it had nothing to do with the government at that point. It was personal preference or love. Perhaps they fell in love with an American. We had a good number of um, Americans uh, who came over to China f for education and fell in love with uh, somebody there in China and stayed on. Uh, fair number. We try to have everybody come to Christmas. And so every American that we could find and frequently we got to meet more Chinese because they had been married to the American. So, wow. interesting. A lot of people don't know that uh, Leonard was instrumental in the creation of the archives we work in today. Uh, he, uh, he helped establish the partnership between the, the university and the UAW, making Wayne State University the official archives of the union. Uh, mm -hmm. This was when he was a vice president uh, in the early 60s. Uh, he also was a strong advocate uh, for the building that we're in today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was actually at the groundbreaking ceremony and drove in the shovel uh, uh, in the mm -hmm. land that the building is at. And um, so can you tell us about uh, any thoughts or anything he said about the importance of the archives? I can um, tell you hearsay of the 19, I think it was 1975 when yes. they built the, the first building. And at that point, Leonard had been a Board of Governors member 
I don't remember the years nor uh, the length of time, but at one point was the director or the um, had been chosen to direct the board uh, for a number of years. Uh, so his knowledge of what this university could do and what it was doing was very accurate and very up-to-date. And then when he became president of uh, UAW, I can certainly imagine how he, knowing his sense of history and his sense of using history and wanting to share it and wanting to make sure that it was accurate, I can see where he would have easily visioned a set of libraries, a set of archival space that could take the UAW history. And then his work with Cesar Chavez and the farm workers and being a, members, a member and acquainted with the different types of union workers all over the world. Uh, he could easily see how if if Wayne State was willing that the two could collaborate and build a building to hold the archives of various um, groups and also to use as a teaching facility for that program, which I gather has become really uh, well respected around the world uh, for educational purposes. And I think that uh, I don't know that he had anything to do with the planning of the shape of the building or what materials were actually used, but he was uh, instrumental in seeing that there was money, UAW money, wisely used in the use of the building. And I think there was a large contribution from UAW for the construction. I, I don't know the facts, but um, the large amount. A very large part of it and I think there were some other donors that were involved as well but UAW was the bulk of the money at least in the beginning to get it started and then it became very clear that um, it was quickly too small and necessary to build some additional space so in 1991 he worked with UAW and they were uh, financially able then to support the building of the what was named the Woodcock Wing. Now the initial building that was um, begun in 1975 and took maybe 18 months to complete or I I'm not it sure. Was, it that, opened in 1975. Oh it, it well if it opened in 75 it must have started in 74, 73, somewhere Around that. in that time. But um, after it was completed and when it was time to name it I know that I heard Leonard talk about uh, the actual naming several times. He was emphatic and very certain that he wanted Walter Ruther's name to be on the, the archives. It uh, stood for education, it stood for his history, it stood for an accumulation of information going forward that would be meaningful in history. And Leonard had great respect for Walter Ruther and he did not need to to have receive applause of his on for himself, and he was uh, felt very strongly about the name. Likewise, he felt very strongly at Black Lake at the Education Center, which is now named the um, Walter Ru Walter and May Ruther Educational Center, UAW Educational Center. And in its beginning, that Education Center really was for education of the as well as 
relaxation and vacations for the workers. And you would come and spend two weeks in the summer with your family if you were chosen by your local um, office. But you didn't go there and just fish all day. You went to actual classes and you learned how to do um, pamphlets and you learned organizing and you learned how to get along together and you learned civil rights and equal rights and it was not, and you had wonderful food and you had a wonderful place to stay but you weren't there just to uh, vacation you were welcome to come back if you wanted later and bring your RV and hook it up to the RV camp or I think they had a tenting camp there for a while but even your children while they were teenagers or younger they had also some work to do while they were there, but it was in a learning capacity. It wasn't in a drill master capacity at all. Um, there even was the old windmill to teach how energy was produced. And it's not there anymore, but uh, for a while it was really quite wonderful to watch kids. Because remember, this was before cell phones and Google this and Google that and search engine this. But um, it was just a place for the whole family, but very educational. Uh, and of course, that's changed over time. But it was um, it was a dream that a dream that came true. So, well, I don't think this building would have been built without Leonard and his support. And also because of that, Troy and I wouldn't have jobs. So, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That that's likely true. Well, it's been a great facility, and it uh, needs—it's uh, bursting at the walls again. So it uh, co continues to collect, and it continues to have people like yourselves come. And um, you have learned, and you have conquered the stacks, and you have uh, now digitalized. Whereas before, we made copies, and um, it is now possible just to copy the handwritten print rather than having to transfer it to type first. So uh, positive changes are coming. But most of all, it houses history. It houses history, and, and if we don't learn from history, we do truly repeat it to our sorrow. So thanks. I have enjoyed talking about it, and Thank I look for forward to, um, to um, another time. We always love it when you come to the archives here. Good. This is great. I'm happy to be among friends again. Thank you. Hey, Gavin, that was a great interview. Thanks thanks for doing that. Thank you. It was so fun to hang out and sit down and talk with uh, Sharon. She's a great personality. She is. She is. And all right, whose idea was it? And actually, all right, you said you sat down. So this was done pre-COVID, I assume. All right, so whose idea was it and, and how that how that come together? I think when we started, or when you and Troy started the podcast, I think she was an obvious person that we wanted to get on the show just because, you know, she's a friend of the Ruther. Uh, we all know her. We all love her. And She's led this amazing life and is connected to Leonard Woodcock, who has deep ties to the archives. I think he's one of the people who helped create the archives. So in a way, you know, without Leonard Woodcock, we wouldn't have jobs here at the Ruther. It's true. It's true. We wouldn't have a whole complete wing that's dedicated to Leonard Woodcock. Now, you worked on the collection of Leonard Woodcock. When you, were you a tech, a student, or I forget now? 
I was an archives tech. I was a part-time employee. I graduated from archives school and uh, was looking for work. And, you know, I was brought into process collections. And the first collection I was given to process was the Leonard Woodcock papers. So, you know, we must (laughs) have really trusted you, man. (laughs) I had some experience, but also I was surprised to be given such a big and important collection. But I think uh, I had uh, experience with Chinese. I was an Asian studies major and I had some language skills. So I think with his experience as the ambassador to China, I think that kind of uh, made me a, maybe a logical choice to process that collection. But Perfect. it was an amazing introduction to, you know, not only Leonard, but uh, the Ruther Library and the types of collections we have here. So, yeah, it was a special, special uh occasion to process his papers. So in that collection then, um, what kind of things would a researcher really enjoy digging them, him or herself into there? Is like, what, what excited you about the collection? Well, you know, as somebody with the, the Chinese background, that was something that was really cool because this was a person who oversaw the normalization between China and America. And this is the moment where the U.S. officially recognizes communist China and really dictates the relationship between the two countries uh, from that point forward. Uh, And this is in the late 70s. So there's a lot of amazing Sino-American relations uh, documented in there and a lot of notes, um, a lot of uh, documents from the U.S. uh, embassy uh, from the before there was an official embassy, the U.S. liaison's office in Beijing. So it's an amazing resource for people who are looking uh, into that period of international relations. And I think one of probably the coolest thing in there is uh, his relationship, Leonard's relationship with Deng Xiaoping, who is probably the most famous Chinese leader in modern Chinese history after Mao Zedong. And this is the person who basically created modern China. They call him the architect of modern China. He created the concept socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is basically, you know, the kind of capitalistic China Mm -hmm. where the Communist Party is still in charge. And uh, he's the person that really set China on the path to becoming the economic power it is today. So hearing Leonard's thoughts about about Deng Xiaoping and uh, their personal relationship. And they really were, uh, you know, as they were friends, they weren't, you know, hanging out with each other every day, but they had a warm relationship. And so seeing that documented in the papers is really a cool part of uh, those materials. That's incredible. That's great. This is, it reminds us that our collections here at the Ruth are not just focused on the urban history of Detroit or labor history, but so much more. Um, But I have a, I have a real question, though, that really involves pop culture. And um, the only time I, when I was young, I heard of Leonard Woodcock was reading Doonesbury. And the Doonesbury cartoon mentions Leonard Woodcock going to China. Is the cartoon in the collection? The cartoon is not in the collection. Oh, uh, There is a photocopy of it, but I think uh, Gary Trudeau still has it somewhere. Gary, we need a copy of that signed and loved toward Leonard Woodcock. Thank you very much. Also, Gary, if you could explain 
what's so funny about that particular strip? I didn't get it. <laughs> well, it's the whole, all right, we won't get into it. I will I'll move on from that. Um, anyway, so are you also, um, since you were, we could say you are the expert of Leonard Woodcock in this building. You also put together permanent exhibit of Leonard Woodcock and the Woodcock wing of the Ruther Library. Um, what kind of things did you really want to highlight? that uh, was special about Leonard for that exhibit that people can learn from at a quick glance. Right. And, and first of all, that exhibit is on our first floor uh, in um, our a hallway down there that anybody can come in and look at it when we reopen to the general public. Uh, and we encourage you to do it. And uh, it's a really cool looking exhibit that was designed by Flutter and Wow, uh, somebody we collaborate often. And uh, there were, there, there were two things that I really wanted to emphasize in the exhibit that I think make him uh, a unique individual. And, and the first is that this is a person who, through his ability to negotiate, uh, to bring two sides together, he changed the world. Um, you know, first he did it as president of the UAW. Uh, he was famous for ending... Um, uh, a really contentious strike between the union and uh, General Motors that went on for uh, over oh, I, about two months and um, really was crippling to the economy and both sides were far apart. And then he comes in and is able to find a common ground and settle the dispute. And then uh, Jimmy Carter taps him to be uh, ambassador to China or, or uh, uh, the liaison to China because we haven't officially recognized them yet. And, you know, that you, you have to remember that not too long ago, American troops are fighting Chinese troops uh, on the Korean peninsula. Right, and, right. you know, we're one of, we're basically public enemy number one in China and to, you know, kind of go through and, and set that aside and, find why, why would this relationship be beneficial to the both of us uh, is something that he did. And, you know, I, things are still contentious and always have been contentious between us, but there's a lot that, uh, you know, we can, there's a lot that we can both benefit from by working together and uh, we can avoid things like warfare if we work together. And I think he was able to emphasize that. And so as negotiator, he really, really changed the, the, the base of modern history. And then the final thing that I think is really great about him is that um, this is a person who's connected to labor. Uh, he was also really involved in the Detroit community, so urban affairs. And he was also on the board of governors of Wayne State. So this is a person who's connecting, connected to all three collection focuses of the Ruther Library. And I think he really is tied to this building. The building is partially named after him. So I think he's somebody that really embodies what the Ruther Library is and what we're about. So I think he was more than deserving to have this, you know, really great exhibit dedicated to him on the first floor. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. Absolutely. And that is why it's been a pleasure to have a part two and a part one of the Leonard Woodcock interview with Sharon Woodcock that you did. Um, so happy that you did it. And I'm so glad that we have finally got it up on our podcast. Thanks a lot, Gavin. Thank you for having me.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. This meeting is being recorded. (laughs) All right, there you go. All right, now we have to work because we're recording. Okay. Because we don't want to give any fodder to Troy to use and any outtakes at the end. Troy, when are we going to do the full episode of all the outtakes? I don't know. I still think that we should do like a Patreon or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or the extra sweary version. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Can do like a, you know, there there was like a too hot for TV Jerry Springer special. It's going to be like that. Exactly. Exactly. So I can't wait for that day. We can do it in April Fools next year. Very nice. You did a good job. That's really good photoshopping there. You know. uh, You You know what? You need to start making memes for the Ruther Library. Oh well, I don't know if I. I can make them if somebody can think of them because I feel like when I try to think of stuff like that, it's it's aggressively unfunny. So. <laughs> <laughs>